In this episode, we're going to be talking about reason as an attribute of the individual from Chapter 6 of Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. Stay tuned. All right, so let's start with a quick summary. So Leonard starts out by saying that reason is a faculty of the individual and that there is no collective mind, there is no collective brain. And then he goes on to address some possible kind of barriers to that idea. So for instance, can we learn from others? Yes, we can learn from others, but we have to undergo the thinking process necessary to understand and validate what they say. Can we build on what we learn from others? Absolutely, but each step forward is the achievement of the individual who takes that first step. Can we reach agreements through conversation with others? Yes, but each person is contributing not their thinking to the group, but the end product of their thinking, which each everybody in the group has to process on their own. Or take something like language. Yes, we, quote, inherit language from our parents and from society, but in order for it to be more than just parroting, there has to be real understanding. And so essentially, each of us has to go through the process of concept formation on our own in order to make that knowledge. And so just as others can make knowledge easier for us to attain, but we still have to do the attaining, so others can also make it harder to attain knowledge, but they can't stop us from doing it. They can't stop us from choosing to think. They can't make us, as Leonard puts it, anti-effort. And so in that sense, the individual is sovereign. We have control as an individual over our minds, whether we use it or not, regardless of what other people do. And you can say the same thing for action, that yes, we can benefit from the rational actions that others take, from their productive efforts we can cooperate with them, we can even engage in a whole division of labor society. And yet, at the end of the day, each of us is responsible and has to engage in the act of production, which, as we've talked about, is an act of the mind, it's an act of reason on our own. And when people do this, part of what it means to say that reason is an attribute of the individual in the realm of production is that you can see that different, indivi different individuals are gr grossly unequal in how productive they are and how creative their thinking is. And that human progress is not the result of a bunch of anonymous mini achievements, but there are major advances that different individuals make and then people of lesser ability fill out and takes forward in kind of smaller bits and bites. And so the conclusion from all of this is that you could put it collectivism is wrong. It's wrong metaphysically. This isn't an ethical point here. We're looking at it as wrong in the way that it conceptualizes man's nature. We are an individual. We're an individual as an entity, and we're an individual in the sense that we control our mind. We control the choices that our own minds make. And then fi the final point is that this shapes our soul and our life. So Leonard t takes on the idea of nature and nurture. And here the point is 
that these two versions of determinism, even if people carve out, yeah, there's some kind of free will we have, but they say that your life is shaped either by your parents and society and other people and or it's shaped by your genes. And from objectivism's perspective, Leonard says that no, to say that reason is your means of survival and that it's an attribute of you, the individual, the, the perspective is that you shape the course of your life and you make your own soul. And this is the idea of Ayn Rand's that man is a being of self-made soul. So a good question to ask about this section is, what's the purpose? And the way I think about it is, we talked about in the last video how reason is man's basic means of survival was really integrating the earlier point that reason is our only means of knowledge with man as a living organism. And so I think what this section is doing is it's integrating reason as man's basic means of survival with free will. What we saw when we talked about free will was that free will is an aspect of our rational faculty. It's under our direct control. It is our freedom to think or not. And here what we're getting is an integration with that, that and it's our means of survival. And so the result is that reason is a faculty of the individual. It is what shapes our ideas, our emotions, our actions, our character. And so this is the idea of man as a being of self-made soul. So that reason shapes every, it shapes our fundamental nature and therefore the course of our life. And so one way to think about it is that this section is really in many ways making explicit what's implicit in the earlier material. And we often see this in OPAR. In fact, in the next section, one of the things that's very striking that we'll see when we turn to ethics is that there's no kind of unique argument for egoism, for the idea that one should be self-interested in objectivism. That what it really is, is just making explicit what is implicit in an earlier argument about the relationship between life and values. And so here what we're doing is We've, we're taking kind of what's implicit in talking about reason as our only means of knowledge, reason is volitional, reason is our basic means of survival, and saying now view it from the perspective of what it, that it's a faculty of the individual and that it shapes an individual's life. And so part of what it's then bringing out about free will is that for objectivism, man does not just have free will, but free will and our choices shape the course of our life. They shape our character. They are efficacious. And we're going to talk more about that. But so the, the conclusion you can say is that objectivism's individualism is not simply moral, but metaphysical, that we're separate entities, we're separate organisms, and that thinking is something we do as individuals, we control as individuals. And that thinking shapes everything crucial about us, everything important about us, it shapes our life. And so that's going to then be carried into when we're looking at ethics. There's a, there, there's a deeply individualistic perspective, just as last time we said, there's a deep um, perspective on the role of reason in life. And, and that's going to get carried through as, as crucial metaphysically given facts once we introduce the goal that's going to guide our normative conclusions, our evaluations, our shoulds uh, in, into ethics and beyond. Now, one really interesting thing is where 
Ayn Rand dramatizes this point the most or in the most vivid way. And interestingly enough, it's an anthem. And so I want to take a moment to read an absurdly long quote from Greg Salmieri, who wrote a piece for Robert Mayhew's book, uh, Essays on Ayn Rand's Anthem. And it's it, it's a really terrific piece. It's called um, Prometheus Discovery, Individualism, and the Meaning of the Concept I. And that collection is really stellar. The whole series is stellar, but this is probably the best one in many ways. And this essay is one of the reasons why, where Greg goes on to show, using many of the principles that he gets from Leonard Peikoff's Objectivism Through Induction, the way in which Prometheus in Anthem induces the concept I, grasps the concept I. But I, th I think this selection from Greg's piece really illustrates some of the material Ayn Rand has in mind when she's making these points about man has no collective brain, that reason is a faculty of the individual or an attribute of the individual. And one of the reasons I do feel justified in quoting this at such length is that I think these this whole series is really undervalued. Not enough people have read it, and even the people who have read it, um, it deserves a lot of attention. So I mean, speaking personally there's probably about 15 to 20 of the chapters of these books as a whole that I reread at least once a year and I view it as some of the most valuable material produced on objectivism in the last decade or so so let's uh, dive right in so this is Greg a man needs the concept I because the mind is an attribute of the individual let me pause real quick. There's lots of quotes thrown in uh, from Anthem and from other places in Ayn Rand here. I'll let you figure out which are Greg's own words and which are quotes uh, if you read the material because it would just be too cumbersome to quote within a quote. But in any case, a man needs the concept I because the mind is an attribute of the individual so that if a man is to think at all, he must do it as one, alone, and only weighing valuing and deciding are not automatic they require an effort on which men can default consider the process by which prometheus discovers the power of the sky he decided to pursue the study of electricity in preference to his other studies he sustains this decision over the course of two years during which time he devises and performs innumerable tests at each step he specifies what he knows e.g metal draws the power of fourth how he knows it because he saw lightning repeatedly hit a tall iron rod and what he does not yet know what this power is whence it comes how it relates to the artifacts of the unmentionable times he then continues working to answer the remaining questions every component of this process is self-consciously chosen as part of the larger project of understanding the strange new power the process requires an awareness of what he knows, of how he knows it. The need for self-awareness is especially acute when Prometheus' conclusions come into conflict with the conventional opinions that he has been taught. Conventional wisdom has it that the lodestone always points north and that this cannot be changed. Yet Prometheus has seen the power of the sky make the needle and the compass move. 
without distinguishing himself from others, it would be impossible for Prometheus to decide whether his observation or the generalization which forbids it are more authoritative. In general, thought is a process that must be initiated and directed at each step by the choice of one man, the thinker. The self-direction in this process requires a constant cognizance of the self as distinct both from the objects of study and from other consciousnesses. The concept I makes the perspective on oneself second nature, and it is the constant need for this perspective that makes the concept mandatory. So I hope that gives you a sense of some of the really clarifying crisp observations of um, the book, the novel, in Greg's essay, and I think I'll just speak for myself. I had read Anthem once back as I think a teenager until um, my mid 20s, maybe even late 20s. And I just assume uh, it's kind of a nice, simple story about the discovery of the eye. But part of what these essays will help you appreciate, and what you will probably appreciate if you reread it after a number of years and with a deeper understanding of objectivism is actually how sophisticated it is and that this is really the most inside the head view we get of what it means to be an independent thinker and somebody's discovery of independent thinking in a context where everything possible has been done to try to in reality create a collective a collective mind a collective brain and wipe out the individual and then by the process of discovering the individual you really get i think at a much deeper and fine-grained level ayn rand's point that reason is a faculty of the individual so i mentioned earlier that i had originally viewed this section as essentially polemical as essentially saying and by the way collectivists are wrong and I don't think that's right. But on the other hand, it is importantly polemical. That is, it's really sweeping the rug out of two intimately related, but really nihilistic and anti-freedom viewpoints, collectivism and egalitarianism. And Leonard Peikoff addresses both of those views here. So collectivism is the idea that there is no individual achievement because we're all members of and dependent on the group. And egalitarianism is the idea that as cells in this collective organism, none of us contributes more than any other, and therefore none of us deserves more than any other. And so we get an answer to both of those. It's that no man is an individual. He thinks as an individual. He learns as an individual. He guides his actions through his choices and his mind. And that what we create as individuals differs vastly between individuals. And this is the point that the greatest steps forward in human progress and progress in knowledge and progress in productivity comes from a handful of individuals. And so you could think in, in, um, in science, for example, you know, where would we be if you just took away a handful of people like take away Galileo, or even go back to the first scientists, take away Aristotle, Galileo, Newton, Einstein, Darwin, and where does that leave us, right? Um, or you, I mean, you could even take the arts, like where would music be without Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky? Um, or you, if you take the field of productivity, where are we going to be without um, 
I mean, just, you know, get a list of the robber barons and the people at Silicon Valley, right? A collective handful of people really push us forward in major ways. And so the egalitarians are deeply wrong. Now, to put it even more in terms of the perspective that we see carved out in this section, collectivism and egalitarianism are both attacks on free will. So one version of the argument, so either they're explicit determinists who say man does not have free will or they take the view of yeah we have free will but it's swamped by outside factors so one version of this argument says that if the individual does have choice he can't take credit for his achievements because it's swamped by luck and this is a kind of view pioneered by john rawls and really elaborated by nagel or you could have the version and this is kind of the way that it uh seeps out into the political consciousness of that you didn't build that nobody gets rich on their own so this is the obama and elizabeth warren kind of approach and from objectivism's perspective the basic answer to this is no reason is our basic means of survival and reason is an attribute of the individual and now that's the fundamental uh perspective but we can get kind of the more fine-grained part of it which is the I mean, the collectivist egalitarians making this point have some tricky arguments about in what way, you know, luck, for, let's take it that way, is going to shape your your outcomes. It's like you're born of vastly different intelligence. You come into the world with vastly different amounts of wealth and you, vastly different amounts of education. And um, they'll point to a story like Bill Gates and say, look at all these things that had to fall into a line in alignment in order for him to be able to start Microsoft, let alone grow it into the largest company on earth. And how in the face of all these things can you credit the individual rather than just say, well, he's caught in a sea of luck. And there's a lot to say about this. I actually wrote a whole chapter in uh, the book I co-edited with Yaron Brook in pursuit of wealth on this very issue. And in fact, I tackle the example of Bill Gates. Here, what I wanna stress is that their main trick is to erect a false version of what it means to achieve something or be responsible for something or earn something. And that their straw man basically says that in order to get credit for something, you have to be responsible for every aspect of it. And since that's never true, even if you're born on a deserted island, or presumably not born on a deserted island, but even if from the time you're a baby, you were on a deserted island, um, everything you create and discover, well, it's still not your achievement. Because why? Well, because you got lucky. You, you didn't pick your parents. That was not something you chose. And so this is actually something Leonard covered earlier in OPAR. So this is in uh, under knowledge is contextual. I don't think we talked about it there, but this is the Rawlsian type of argument. So just to give the what Leonard says there. So Rawls makes this claim that nobody earns his brain. And Leonard argues that like this is context dropping because the what gave rise to the concept of earn was the need to distinguish between people with healthy brains, some of whom exercise their mind and achieve knowledge and achieve values and reality and people who choose not to and Rawls is just going to drop that context and say well did they work to achieve their brain and so Leonard says 
if this sort of action were included in the concept earning, working to achieve your brain, it would not be a valid concept at all, but a fantasy. Rawls's illogic is evident. He takes a concept formed to organize a certain field of concretes, then drops the field and applies the term as though it were a self-sufficient, non-relational entity to a situation in which it has no application. And so, like I said, I've written a whole article on this. What I want to stress here is that the most fundamental perspective on this is that reason is our basic means of survival. And to say that is to say that it is the fundamental determiner of who we are in the course of our life. That in grasping that reason is basic man's means of survival, you the inductive evidence, what you see is that no fundamentally the shape of a person's life is shaped by the choices they make with their mind. One final point to cover. So We've talked about the way in which evil philosophies are systems of rationalization and ultimately rationalizations for wanting to put the I wish over the it is. And in particular, that usually it takes some form of rationalizing the desire to control and the desire to destroy, the desire for power and the desire to wipe out. And I think it's relatively easy for people to get the way in which the altruist morality plays a role here and why rationalizing and, and how that is a tool of rationalization for power and destruction. But the there's a deeper perspective that Ayn Rand often talks about, about how these philosophies are attacking man's mind. And we can see how that plays out. There's an attack on man's mind that says man's mind can't know reality. And here there's we can see there's an attack on free will, that it's whether or not you can know reality, your mind has no efficacy in reality. It is not a tool for efficacious action in the world that you are a puppet and you're maybe you're a blind puppet or maybe you're a puppet that can see some things but can't do anything about his or her fate. And so you can think, you know, the Humean Kantian attack is fundamentally on man's ability to know and then the determinist collectivist attack uh, will often include man's inability to know, but that it can often take this view of its in, the inability to act in the world efficaciously. And the once you say that an individual can't control his fate, he's not in control in his life, then that is used as grounds for, well, then he should be controlled by others. And then you can contrast that with Ayn Rand's view that no, it's precisely because we can know reality and whether or not we know reality is fundamentally under our volitional control. It's under our control because reason is our volitional faculty and that our choices shape our successes or failure, both in knowing and action. That she's able to say that an individual deserves credit for their achievements. And those achievements will be different from individual to individual. And that a society, in order for men to function, has to respect this and protect this, has to protect the mind. And so I think what I want to highlight here is the way in which there's we're, we're starting to see the connection between the mind, the individual, and life, and freedom, and the way in which evil philosophies are rooted most deeply in an attack on the mind and ultimately we'll see the way in which the attack on the mind is deeply connected to a morality that calls for sacrifice 
And so look forward to going to that in the next chapter. But for now, that's it for this video. That's it for this chapter. We are ready to move on to ethics and in particular start with chapter seven, the good. In the meantime, be sure to like this video, subscribe to the YouTube channel. And if you want to stay in touch, as always, the best way is to go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter. Talk next time.